case. Hope not hates are basically controlling Britain. Hope not hate. An alluring name for those more concerned about social justice than truth. These backwards, these backwards thinking, virtue, sick, virtue signaling, fake news crate. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Hope Not Hate podcast. I'm Matthew McGregor, Hope Not Hate's campaigns director. Today, we're replaying a webinar recorded in the days after Joe Biden's election victory against Donald Trump. Biden's win was a moment of triumph for anti-fascists everywhere, but it was also an opportunity for us to learn. We asked two Biden staffers to tell us about how they organized during a coronavirus crisis to win voters over and to increase turnout. We heard from Senior Advisor for Digital, Caitlin Mitchell, and Digital Organizing Director, Jose Nunes. But the first voice you'll hear is Hope Not Hates, Joe Cox. So I think I'll start off by introducing myself. My name is uh, Joe Cox. I'm the Digital Officer at Hope Not Hate. Um, I've worked in various digital roles over the last couple of years, uh, including for MPs like David Lammy. I worked for the People's Vote Campaign. Um, and I recently was the Head of Digital Organizing for Keir Starmer's uh, Leadership Campaign. Um, we are joined today by uh, two fantastic guests who I'm going to introduce in a second, um, but also you'll see on our screen there's a fourth person here called uh, Hope Not Hate. Uh, that's my brilliant colleague, Afrida, uh, who's in the back end um, doing great work and making sure that everything runs smoothly and this, uh, this couldn't happen without her. Um, just going to quickly introduce our two fantastic guests. So first up we have uh, Caitlin Mitchell. Um, so Caitlin was the Senior Advisor um, uh, for Digital for Biden for President. She previously served as the Chief Mobilization Officer for the Democratic National Committee, Digital Director at Emily's List, um, and as the Chief Mobilization Officer at Warren for President. Um, so Caitlin, hi. Hello, thank you for having me, Joe. Yeah, thank you so much for joining. Um, and then we're also joined uh, by Jose Nunes, um, who was the Director of Digital Organizing for Biden for President. Um, he previously worked for Kamala Harris's presidential campaign as the Director of Online Organizing um, and Regional Mobilization Director of the Democratic National Committee. Um, so, Jose, hello. Hello, everyone. I'm excited to be here. Cool. Um, so, in a minute, you guys are going to hear from both of our fantastic um, panelists. Um, I'm going to try not to go on for too long before that because I'm very aware that you all uh, join the call to hear from them and not from me. Um, but before that starts, I just wanted to say um, a quick note about the way that Hope Not Hate funds itself. Um, so we have thousands of members all across the UK um, who fund the work that Hope Not Hate does by setting up a monthly direct debit um, to support us and make everything that we do possible. Um, and not to go on too long, but some of the things that we do do um, is that we, we take on the far right wherever we find them and we work in communities that are divided to bring those communities back together um, and to uh, stop the far right from infiltrating and dividing those communities. We infiltrate the far right, we undermine the far right, but we also take on the political threat um, from the right, which means that we uh, stopped the, we, we kicked the British National Party out of power embarking back in the 2000s. Um, we uh, took on UKIP when they turned into an electoral force and at the 2019 general election, um, we stopped the Brexit party from getting any seats in the British Parliament. Um, all of that is possible because our members uh, support us with a monthly direct debit and if you guys watching tonight, if any of you would like to uh, become one of those members and support that work, um, I believe that Frida is about to post the link uh, into the chat and you can uh, go there to become a member. Um, but enough from me and enough about that, we're going to uh, move over to our brilliant guests. So first up tonight, uh, we're going to hear from Caitlin. Um, and so Caitlin, I'll um, hand over to you. 
Thanks and hello everyone watching in all of our various time zones. Uh, it is 3 p.m. in Boston, Massachusetts, but almost dark because that's how it works over here. Um, so super excited to be here today. Uh, I was senior advisor for digital on the Biden campaign and I thought it would be helpful for the conversation of organizing in the time of COVID to really start by talking about some of the underlying principles and some of the discussions that we had when I first joined the campaign about how we were going to approach organizing writ large during a pandemic, how we were going to scale up with the goal of creating the largest volunteer led movement um, and to make the most uh, voter contacts ever in a general election with the goal of unseating Donald Trump. So to start, I'll do a little bit of just setting the stage. Um, so I joined the campaign in May of this year. I almost said last year. Wow. Uh, May of this year, a long, long time ago. And we were at a very interesting inflection point. We were about a month or two into the pandemic. Um, on the campaign, uh, we had stopped all in-person campaigning. Um, uh, President-elect Biden was, uh, you know, infamously in his basement, uh, but being safe and modeling safety um, and communicating with voters that way. We were figuring out how to fundraise and that was both for grassroots donors and for um, our uh, major donors. What did fundraising events look like? How are we going to uh, communicate online and make sure that we got the message out? But the biggest question we had was really, how are we gonna approach organizing? And so we had a, a very good and hearty, fruitful discussion over a number of weeks um, in May leading into June, in which we kind of came away with a few principles about the model that we were going to build. Um, the first principle was that we were going to create um, an organizing model that was virtual first. And I'm saying that instead of digital first, because there's a lot of talk of, you know, this is a digital-led campaign, but a lot of the tactics that we were using in organizing, such as making calls, are as old as time. We've been phone banking um, for decades and decades, and so it was much less about moving everything to how we do it digitally, but how do we do it virtually? The idea at the time was that if we felt that there was a time and place in specific areas in which we could safely campaign in person or safely distribute lit or safely do distance events. We would cross that bridge when we got to it. But our plan was to start virtual first and then fold in in person if we felt that we were in a place where we could do so later down the road. The second core principle that we discussed a lot was uh, how did we want to measure success? And for US campaigns and uh, you know, organizing programs going all the way back, usually our North Star is door knocking. How many knocks are we gonna do? How many canvassers do we have out? How many packets have we crushed today? And uh, this was a question that our campaign manager, General Malley Dillon, you know, brought up a lot. In, in our virtual world of uh, in our virtual world, how how are we gonna measure success? What was our North Star if it wasn't door knocks? Where we landed on was meaningful conversations. And the idea was that regardless of channel, you know, whether over the phone, by text, uh, through a Zoom call, uh, through WhatsApp, through an Instagram DM, that a meaningful conversation with someone who needed to hear it was a meaningful conversation. And so we made a meaningful conversation our North Star. 
Uh, from that, we knew that we were really going to have to uh, lean into our training and make sure that our volunteers were fully trained, were fully comfortable, knew how to use our technology. We knew we would be training a bunch of volunteers on, you know, how to uh, use Zoom and also use Slack and use uh, a dialer that they had perhaps never used before ever. And so we put a big emphasis on training. Um, and just as part of that, uh, I just wanna shout out our national training director, Gabriella Castone, absolutely incredible work to create programs that scaled. We had uh, training folks in all of our battleground states, making sure that our volunteers were comfortable. And the third piece, just a moment. Um, the third piece that we really wanted to consider was how do we create community? Uh, we knew that you know, this is something that General Malley Dillon has said time and time again, when people first turn out to volunteer, um, they often come for the candidate. When people return a second and third time, they come for the community. They come for the feel of being in a field office and talking with other folks. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about how are the places that we could create community or the opportunity for community online. And where we landed um, in, in, uh, in both our states and nationally was that Slack really did become our virtual field office for, field office for all intents and purposes um, for the course of the campaign. And we were extremely thoughtful in how we set up uh, both our Slack rooms and different channels where people communicated both in a state and nationally. So people had other people to connect with. They were never making calls or sending texts or doing voter contact alone. They always had a crew of folks supporting them, a crew of folks cheering them on um, every step of the way. So those were kind of the three things uh, that we really wanted to uh, keep at top of mind uh, as we build out our organizing model. And where our model landed was uh, a combination of two really powerful models. And that is a traditional community organizing model, one which was you know, used to much success um, by both of the Obama campaigns um, and then picked up by the Republicans to use to, I would say, lesser success this year, um, and a distributed organizing model. And this was something you know, pioneered by the Sanders campaign in 16. In the 2020 cycle, um, they took it to the next level. I was on Senator Elizabeth Warren's campaign in the primary, and we did a lot of work um, in the distributed organizing space too. Our thought was to combine the best of both worlds. And so there were two different ways that it looked. And then I will let Jose get into all the details and nitty gritty and details of, of, of how it actually worked. But the basic structure was that for in-states, we were going to have a traditional organizing model alongside an in-state distributed model. For the traditional organizing model, we had organizers. We had over a thousand who started, we would say on the ground in June, even though on the ground meant many places, including uh, a lot of folks childhood bedrooms uh, during the pandemic. Um, and we would also have in-state distributed. And what this did was it was a bit of a choose your own adventure. It allowed volunteers to choose how, choose how they wanted to engage with the campaign. So we knew that a lot of volunteers were used to the Obama community organizing, you know, neighborhood team leader model. Folks were used to engaging on their neighborhood, in their block, in their community, going to their field office. And we knew that the primary way in which they did that was through building a direct relationship with an organizer. 
we thought that is smart, that works, people are used to it and like it, and we do not want to mess that up. And so we had uh, a really robust uh, organizing program with field organizers uh, in all of our battleground states. However, we also knew that there would be a desire for some folks to come in and particularly for folks who had volunteered um, in a distributed program before, perhaps in one of the primaries, who were not used to working directly with an organizer. They were used to working within a Slack and a distributed model. And so we set that up. We had 17 battleground uh, state instances of Slack where people could join. So if you were in Florida, you could uh, connect with an organizer in Miami and work with them all the way through the campaign. Or you could sign up online, do a training on either making calls or sending texts, join the Slack community, and become part of that community and work there. And that, you know, is a model that was never tried before, but I think brought us a lot of success. It let people choose how they wanted to engage at the level they were comfortable with and with the level of staff support that, that, they, uh, that they wanted most. Then taking it over to the national level, our thought for the national level was that we were going to embrace a full distributed model. And this is something that uh, I had just come off of the war in primary. We had seen a lot of success. Uh, I was a true believer and still am in empowering volunteers. And if you empower volunteers and train them, they're going to do amazing things and come up with amazing ideas and actually come up with shortcuts and workarounds and innovations that you wouldn't have even thought of yourself. And so I came off as a big believer in that and uh, pitched that, and we decided to use that as our national model. How that played out was that for anyone who wasn't in a battleground state, they would join our national distributed team. They could be part of the text team or the call crew. And then they wouldn't necessarily be organizing, say in Illinois, but they would be trained up and then the capacity of this giant group of hundreds of thousands of volunteers would then be able to be channeled to whatever battleground state was needed most. And the value of having this super well-trained, super engaged, super engaged crew of, it was about 150,000 plus volunteers at the national level paid dividend after dividend, especially in October, as we uh, moved into the part of the race where the polls tighten and things change. And uh, we had to change uh, our approach in states based on what was going on with COVID and what uh, tactics we were able to use. And so we, we called this group and this capacity that was brought by these volunteers, um, the fire hose. It was a volunteer fire hose, very smart capacity that could then be pointed at whatever state or states needed it most on a given day. This was helpful both for making sure that we hit all our goals, but I think particularly in an election like this, there was so much voter education um, that we had to do that we normally did it. You know, millions of Americans voted by mail for the first time. We had huge early vote turnout. And so often our battleground states were up against a few priorities at once. What we would do, and we always deferred to the states first, um, is we would uh, ask them, you know, what do you want to do in state with your state based volunteers are going to be who are going to be the best messengers on this. And then for they would uh, choose what they wanted to do and they would say, hey, can you do this last reminder for voter registration? Can you do this final reminder for vote by mail? And that was a ongoing discussion between the national team and the states all the way through the campaign. So 
at the end of the campaign, uh, you know, we're very proud that we made uh, close to 700 million um, voter contact attempts, which is just wild. They're like unthinkable numbers. For comparison, uh, in Obama 2012, which is, you know, seen as, you know, on the U.S. side, they're a gold standard of, of organizing, there were 150 million voter contact attempts. And that is not an apples to apples comparison. I'm not going to pretend that it is. Uh, texting wasn't really a thing then. We were not using a predictive dialer that made it a lot faster. And it was still very much a Knox-based program. Um, so that is in no way to say that those things are equal, but it just gives you a sense of scale that we were able to achieve in an incredibly short period of time um, to reach voters, to persuade them, and to turn out the vote. Of that, uh, close to 700 million, uh, over 300 million of those attempts were through calls. And so when we get back to thinking about, you know, what is a meaningful conversation, you know, this is not uh, showing up uh, at folks' doors, but it was the closest thing that we could get of getting folks on the phone. And we made sure our volunteers never felt pressured in a shift to, you know, call and have as many conversations as possible. But their, their goal was to have as many substantive conversations. If that was five minutes, great. 10, 15, that's all good. However long it took, much like when you were at a door, um, to have a conversation to really answer voters' questions, that was the goal of what we were trying to build. So that's just kind of in a nutshell, uh, a little bit on our organizing model. Um, I would love to call out just a, a few pieces of our program that Jose will go into more that I think are helpful for this group and helpful for thinking about future elections that, you know, whether in a pandemic or not, are definitely applicable um, and were really helpful for us. Uh, the first would be our relational organizing program. Um, we decided to, for the first time in a general election, really lean in on relational organizing. And, uh, you know, there's relational itself is a bit of a buzzword. Um, it is often thought of as compared to an app and that you need an app or a special tool to do um, good relational organizing. At the end of the day, relational organizing is as old as time and it is reaching out to friends and families who are always, no matter what, the best messengers for changing minds, changing hearts, and getting people out to vote. And so Jose will go more into it, but there's a lot of good takeaways from the program that we ran and what we learned, particularly in reaching communities who we were not able to reach otherwise, um, that I think uh, is indicative of what future campaigns can do. Um, second, is a lot of what we would call non-traditional organizing. And a lot of this was uh, done to a very good success in uh, a number of the democratic primaries. Taking that to the next level and learning and talking to all those folks um, for the general election was really important to us. Um, and so that is organizing uh, regardless of channel. It didn't need to be through a specific channel. It could be through DM groups. Um, there was a whole bunch of great organizing done by our state digital organizing teams working with existing Facebook groups. Some of them were political, some of them weren't political at all. And the, what we found to be most successful was one of our organizers, our staff, our volunteers reaching out to the moderators of those groups. Um, my favorite example is one of 
one that is Wisconsin-based. Uh, folks here may remember Scott Brown from Wisconsin. I'm pretty sure the group is called Scott Brown Sucks. It's been around a long time. Um, but that was one of the groups that we worked with in Wisconsin. And the moderator, what we found is that to really engage them the most, instead of having our folks come in and just drop a bunch of volunteer links or share a bunch of videos, really building a relationship with those moderators of those groups and key communities that people in state or in a local community pay attention to was super helpful. Uh, the third program um, that I would like to uh, just talk about a little bit is our Facebook click to messenger program. And this was Jose's baby, his brainchild. So I'm only going to talk about it a little bit because he can do it much better justice than me. Um, but in the last month of the campaign, you know, we had been calling people, we had been texting people, and we were finding that there were a certain number of folks who were just not reachable for whatever reason. They weren't picking up the phone, they weren't responding to text messages. Um, there were also folks for which we didn't have a cell phone number in which we couldn't reach in any way. And so we took those audiences of both people for whom we didn't have a phone number or who we couldn't reach. And we ran Facebook click to messenger ads to them in which they would get a simple ad um, asking them to take a short survey um, and let Joe Biden, had Joe Biden smiling in a lot of the ads of uh, him, you know, share, share, share your feelings, share what issues are most important to you. Once people clicked on that ad and started to engage, uh, we used Amplify AI, which is uh, a tool that operates as a bot, to communicate back and forth and answer some basic questions of, hey, are you planning to vote? Um, you know, are you planning to vote by mail or in person? Here's some information for you. Can we help you look up your polling place? I think the coolest part of this program, though, is that we also were able to sync it so that if uh, supporters had specific questions um, that couldn't be answered by a bot, because a bot is a bot, that we were able to connect them with a live volunteer. We use Help Scout for this, and that was super helpful. Um, and it's the same thing that you see, you know, in customer service for a number of like store websites of like, hello, can we help you today? Um, but I think there's a lot of value in that. And through that program alone, which we only ran through the last few weeks, we were, we were able to have over 250,000 conversations with uh, voters who we could not reach during any other way through any other method during the campaign. Uh, so that was one of the things we're most proudest of. And I just want to shout out Jose because that was one of his ideas. Um, and it was, it was a bear and a beast for all the technical pieces to be put together, but something that was really of high value and something that I think can be modeled and used uh, by campaigns moving forward. So with that, um, I can kick it back to you, Joe, or if you want to kick it over to Jose um, and, and have him talk about the details of how we did it. Yeah, amazing. Caitlin, thank you so much. Um, and it's it is really interesting. There's there's so much there that sounds so familiar to what we do in the UK, but the the more than anything, the scale is just the difference. I, I worked for a campaign where we made 300,000 phone calls and we were popping champagne corks and we were like, this is the most amazing thing we've ever done. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, it's a, it's a geographical thing, but the, the, the numbers pale in comparison. We would pop champagne corks for that too. I mean, this was truly, you know, it's it, it's the it's the general election, so the scale is going to be like nothing else. Um, but but yes, we were surprised. Our goal was to build the biggest. We needed to, 
Um, and it was really the volunteers uh, that came through and Jose can talk about this, but we had more volunteer capacity coming in at rates. That was one of the largest things we had to solve for was how do we onboard them quickly? How do we train at an even greater scale? Um, and then there were a few times in the last few weeks where we actually had more volunteers than we actually had voters that we needed to contact. The scale was just immense um, with enthusiasm. So it's really a credit to folks who wanted to give some of their time um, in terms of what we were able to do together. Yeah, absolutely. That's the dream. Uh, Jose, over to you. Uh, thank you. Uh, Caitlin gave uh, a wonderful background system to everything that we um, actually ended up building on, on the digital organizing team. Um, I would love to kind of piggyback on everything that she just noted and go a little bit more into uh, the structure of the team and how we actually facilitated all the work that we did um, and also give a little bit more context into the organizing technology that we actually enlisted onto the onto the department to actually facilitate all the outreach that we did. And I'll, and I'll go a little bit more deeper into some of the learnings and some of the difficulties that we had, but also uh, all of the achievements that Caitlin noted as well. So. I think as any good organizer and folks that have led organizing teams, uh, the first thing that we needed to do was figure out um, structure, but also we can't figure out a structure without thinking through the approach, uh, which was to also identify the landscape of how we'd be organizing. Uh, I think Caitlin did a good job of, of giving the background of we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, we knew that we were not gonna be able to uh, reach people at their doors or have a lot of in-person conversations. Uh, so that really allowed us to think through creatively of how we're gonna reach voters and converse with them in a virtual space. Uh, but we also needed to think through who the messenger would actually be in the outreach process. So uh, I think Caitlin also made a good note of remembering that the digital organizing team wasn't necessarily um, 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 organizers. It was a team dedicated to support the empowerment of grassroots volunteers to lead as the messenger in their own communities and also in all of the voter contact outreach that we did. Um, the structure of our team was also more important than the tools that we enlisted. And I think this is incredibly important for folks that are thinking through building a digital organizing program. So um, I will always say this, and I'll take this to my grave, tools should not define your program, but rather the program should define the tools necessary to effectively achieve your end goals. So whenever you're thinking through a program like this in the way that we thought it through uh, was really defining smart objectives and goals, uh, defining how our team was gonna be structured to achieve those. Uh, but then also the tools that were going to be necessary uh, to achieve our end goals. So as we were starting to define um, some of the, the needs that we we're going to have on the campaign, it came down to a lot of different things, but just to outline what they were. Um, Kayla made a note of this as well. Um, we needed to really be creative in how we recreate um, basically an office space that you would as a field organizer, uh, recreate that online. So a place that volunteers could come to, to build community, build long lasting friendships, um, uh, work with like-minded volunteers and organizers, um, be able to be supported and trained uh, by some of our team members, but also volunteer leaders. We also needed a pathway for folks to do voter, voter contact outreach and be trained in the process through all of our different tool sets that we would end up enlisting. We also needed a state support system. Uh, Caitlin noted this as well. We really uh, understood um, and we'd never had an intention to run a national specific program. Uh, our intention was to support state programs uh, we needed a really hyper-focused uh, uh, distributed model that uh, kind of landed a hand in our state programs, but also a community organizing approach. Um, so we needed some kind of system nationally to, to support our state programs and, and noting that the landscape was gonna be different. The demographics we're reaching out to, our audiences were different in each of our states. Uh, so state, state empowerment and support systems were very much needed. We also had email and SMS subscriber engagement. So 
Um, that was an entire uh, piece of our program that we knew was gonna be incredibly impactful to, to reach voters and supporters. We also knew that we needed social community engagement. So there's gonna be folks that, that were in Facebook groups on TikTok, Instagram, Pinterest, doesn't matter which social community that existed out there. We wanted to have some type of way to engage in all of them, especially identifying supporters that weren't necessarily in our voter contact universes, or there was no possible way of us identifying if they were a voter and a supporter. Um, we also had a, another system that was really important for us to think about, which was inbox management. So, um, you know, folks have an info app inbox uh, for folks just to have general questions or um, specific email addresses for folks to ask questions around a specific uh, issue or task that you have on your campaign. Um, we wanted to not just have that be a bubble for folks to feel like they were going to be heard, but never get responded to. So we actually had a team dedicated uh, to responding to people that emailed us and be able to respond to those folks one-on-one, -on -one, categorize them, um, and be able to respond to issues that we saw come through. We also had a team that was dedicated to data and analytics. So we knew this was gonna be incredibly impactful for us. Can't talk to anybody or know who we're talking to without the support of data. And then analytics to really make sure that all of our programs were talking to each other. So nothing, nothing lived in a silo. Um, we also had in that part platforms and organizing tech strategy. So all of our platforms, which I'm gonna run through soon, there's a lot of them. We needed to make sure that all of our volunteer experiences were cohesive across all of our platforms. And also the vendors that we enlisted understood the roadmap and the strategy. So also our vendors were not living in a silo. And then most importantly, voter education. So we wanted to make sure that anything that we were doing across all of our platforms, all across our volunteer programs, we're educating voters in what was a very confusing time full of disinformation uh, to make sure that they knew that their voice could be heard and that they knew exactly how to vote. So with all that said, um, we enlisted eight different uh, teams and verticals within digital organizing. Uh, first and foremost, which I think was the, the crux of our entire operation, which was our distributed organizing program nationally, first and foremost. Uh, our distributed organizing team consisted of four different program verticals. It included our peer-to-peer -peer text messages, our phone calls program, our volunteer-led events, and then our relational organizing program. So our distributed organizing team was very much at the forefront of all of our voter contact programs, leveraging volunteers who were very much located in non-battleground states, meaning they were not within 17 of our key targeted states, but were just as empowered and, and just as much trained on how to have an effective conversation than someone that lived in, in Florida or North Carolina or any of our key battleground states. We also had our state's digital organizing team going back to that state empowerment piece. Uh, these folks empowered and, and provided strategic support on behalf of um, all of our state digital organizing programs. They held our in-state leadership accountable to all of the goals that we were setting in the process. And they also provided uh, coaching and training on developing in-state distributed programs, tools implementation and coordinating all of our universe prioritization for all of our voter contact programming. And within our state's program specifically that Caitlin uh, noted a little bit about, we had a distributed organizing team and an online community team. It was very much a version, a scaled down version of what we were doing nationally to support and making sure every single voter was reached out to more than once in, more, in most cases. And then number two, that any volunteer, regardless if they lived in a rural area of their state, uh, were not necessarily uh, turfed to an organizer. They had a home to be a part of our team, which was incredibly impactful. And, and in most cases was the biggest reason why we scaled the program to the size that it got scaled to. We also had our digital engagement team. So our digital engagement team managed our two verticals around uh, subscriber lists. So that was email and SMS. And their sole purpose 
was leveraging our subscriber programs to organize and mobilize supporters around volunteer opportunities. So this included voter education, voting, key campaign moments such as debates and convention. And the team collaborated closely but worked separately from the email and broadcast text message staff that was on our fundraising team for grassroots fundraising purposes. We also had our online community team. So nationally, these folks engaged and managed relationships with volunteer leadership in online group settings. They managed all of our inbox systems and communicated one-on-one -on -one with supporters who emailed us in our inboxes. And they also one-on-one -on -one had conversations with folks messaging us on Facebook. Our platforms and technology team was really, really incredibly impactful uh, towards, um, I would say, throughout the actual general election that we had. Um, they were working very closely with all of our program leads. So folks that were leading tech, uh, text messages, phone calls, uh, online communities, whatever the program was, they were ensuring that the volunteer experience through all of the platforms and tools that we were using were cohesive, uh, were specific, um, and also making sure that our digital organizing priorities were aligned with our campaign's technology and analytics roadmap. Why is that important? Every conversation that we had, every volunteer that came through uh, what we called the front door of the program, wanted to make sure we understood what was the first step of the process of them getting onboarded, how is the technology kind of overlapping with that process, and were they actually having some type of human element of engagement uh, throughout the pathway of a volunteer. Um, I would also jump to uh, our DNC digital organizing team. So the Democratic National Committee was an incredibly big partner for us to our success. Uh, the DNC digital organizing team coordinated on all of our uh, volunteer and voter programming um, including the development and management of IWillVote.com, which is a, a voter product, uh, a website um, that allowed all of our voter education, everything from voter registration, which I'll go into more detail in a little bit, um, our vote by mail registration process, um, and then also supported in a lot of our programming around a subscriber email and broadcast text programs too. Um, a lot of our programs of the DNC digital organizing team also dealt with chase programs. So folks that were signing up to register to vote or signing up to vote by mail. We had automated pathways to the DNC to be able to chase people, educate them in the process and make sure that they returned their mail ballot or actually voted in person. So we had a pretty, pretty robust uh, team structure that was gonna support all of our verticals. But second, we knew that we needed to enlist a new suite of organizing technology to support in all of our outreach. So we looked for tools that met a very specific need and if it was volunteer facing, we needed the tool to be able to scale with the program. Um, and it had to be flexible in meeting our constantly changing needs uh, to optimize our programs where and when needed. So I just wanna note as I go through these, the majority of our tools fit the needs of the end user, uh, which was our volunteers. Uh, it was not necessarily fitting the needs of our digital organizers. It was a very small part. It was mostly our volunteer experience. So online office and events, our Slack community. So Slack is a, is a free platform. I want to note that because we actually didn't spend a single dime on, on leveraging Slack. Um, we had over 160,000 volunteers use our Slack platform nationally. And we also had more than 50,000 volunteers in our states, to Caitlin's point, who had state-specific Slack accounts. And we used these uh, Slack accounts uh, to uh, set up channels, is what Slack calls it. Uh, to have dedicated specific tasks and, and communication uh, relevant to a volunteer's interest. So for example, um, we had tiered texting channels uh, based on expertise level. So if a volunteer was uh, signing up to text for the first time, they could actually uh, uh, communicate and engage with volunteer leadership um, that was you know, first time users or had never communicated with another voter through text message. 
It also allowed us to easily communicate with volunteers around big program moments. And we also could manage thousands of volunteers virtually every day. So I just wanna make a note here. Nationally, Slack had 160,000 volunteers. It was only managed uh, by less than 14 staff members. So a lot of the automation that we created was a big part of that. Um, and also our volunteer leadership. Um, we, there were moments, I wanna be clear that we, we broke the limits of a lot of our technology uh, that is a real thing. Um, after the VP selection of Kamala Harris, we were in some cases seeing 5,000 to 10,000 people join Slack a day in a single day. Um, so these are people creating user accounts, hopping in and being like, I wanna do something, give me something to do. The reality was we didn't have enough volunteer leadership to answer 10,000 people every single day uh, manually. So we actually uh, did some innovation. We built um, a bot um, using Slack's API uh, to automatically onboard volunteers based on their volunteer interest. It was incredibly impactful to the onboarding process and allowed us to have limitless scale. I would say with RobBot, we could have easily scaled to a million volunteers in Slack with no problem. Um, maybe not so much for Slack as a company, but for us, it would have been uh, no issue. Um, Second was Mobilize America. So Mobilize America is a, is a vendor that has been in this space for, I think now almost four years. Um, they were definitely the front door for all of the actions taken on the campaign. So it allowed us to easily promote events across 17 uh, state organizations and external groups and partners. Um, it allowed us to empower volunteers to host and manage their own events end to end. And volunteers, uh, leaders could be at the forefront of training other volunteers on how to host events all completely virtually. Um, by the end of the campaign, we actually used uh, their platform uh, to allow volunteers to host more than 11,000 events. Um, and we also uh, gathered more than 1.6 million event signups. So that included name, zip code, email, and phone number, which really is supported in us doing a follow-up outreach to a lot of our volunteers. Um, the other thing that should just be noted, these are three platforms that were really crucial for us. Zoom was everything for us in terms of actual engagement with volunteers. So all of our training, and in some cases, our phone banks were held on Zoom, and it allowed us to do breakout rooms, have a more personal experience with volunteers, engaging with our organizing program would not have been possible without having some type of video conferencing platform. Okay, so voter contact outreach. Um, I do wanna go a little bit more into detail, which I think is probably uh, a contentious question and also things that have been popping up in the last couple of weeks. Um, how did we navigate a space where we couldn't knock on a door um, and I think this is a really, really impactful, important uh, part of our program. Um, and then also the reality is, uh, you know, in America, we have the, uh, the uh, voter network. Uh, so any of our databases, we have folks that have voted in previous election cycles. In some cases, we have their home address. We have their phone numbers, um, things that allows us to, um, to reach out to them via text message and phone call. But in a lot of cases, especially in the short period of time that we had, um, we didn't have a phone number on file or we know that we could knock on their door. How can we effectively uh, scale a program quickly enough to reach out to these people and build a relationship? So we thought about relational organizing in a different way. First and foremost, we enlisted Outvote, which is a company uh, who uh, uh, supported us in building out an application um, for our relational organizing outreach campaigns. This was primarily used for voter education and vote by mail chase towards the end of the campaign. So folks that had a mail ballot in hand we wanted to persuade them and make sure that they returned their ballot. Our national team ran a relational voter contact program that targeted national capacity uh, towards reaching uh, targets in battleground states. So the premise of this was using virtual roundtables um, as the heart of the relational organizing engine. 
So we have recruited and enabled volunteer leaders to host relational roundtables on Zoom with you know, basically 25 community members that would serve two purposes. One, to identify, test, and grow leadership um, and capacity to recruit other people and facilitate events. And then number two, it was to recruit additional volunteers to take relational organizing shifts. So reaching out to their friends and family and their networks. By the end, 35% of our conversations in the final four and 10 days of the campaign were with voters in critical targeted battleground universes. So this, what this means is if I lived in New York and I knew someone in South Carolina, in most cases, I wouldn't even know to reach out to someone I knew in South Carolina or North Carolina that had a mail ballot. This program allowed people to know, regardless of their location in a virtual world, that they knew someone that was key in a battleground state to get the, num the number of electoral votes that we needed to win. We also found out that contact rates by the end of the campaign were over 50% during the final four days. So that meant in most cases, a text message was below 10% contact rates. Phone calls, we, from the number that Caitlin noted, we hit saturation at that point. Like we could keep calling and it was not gonna be a problem, but we couldn't contact enough people. Relational allowed us to have 50% contact rates. And 84% of the final 10 days of conversations that we had through the program uh, were within battleground state voters by non-battleground non state volunteers. And then our team modeled high quality organizing and leadership development and systems that could overcome social distancing to establish high impact contact. Uh, so by the end, we actually, we actually started to think through what was incredibly hard and I just wanna note this, you really have to be bought into a program approach like this. It cannot be something you spin up on a whim. You really have to invest in it. Um, but we wanted to think about another creative way to reach specific targeted demographics and audiences. Um, so we actually partnered with the, the Democratic National Committee uh, to build a fellowship program. So we targeted youth and constituency groups and folks that we knew were supporters uh, through a paid fellowship program. And then we train them to enlist them to reach out to their own contacts, their own networks and people that they knew. So our training program taught fellows, staff and volunteers how to reach out to their own networks. And we also had 161 paid fellows that took over 3000 actions in the last two weeks of the election. They filled out 32 reports per member. So everything that we had was based on reports. So reports meant that you had a conversation with a voter contact um, that was within our targeted universes. And this really was the first demonstration of a first successful paid relational canvassing program uh, to date, honestly, from a lot of campaigns that I talked to that have attempted this. And our, and our leaders really had a record-breaking low flake rates for friend banks uh, we, with an average of a 4% flake rate through that paid relational program. Uh, so I would just say for folks that are thinking through relational programming, don't think uh, just related to volunteer programs, paid relational canvassing can work. Um, and, and there was a first approach that we took that, that did have some success. Um, and then lastly, we overcame a lot of hesitation um, and trust uh, uh, gaps that our attendees had with our application, um, the, the actual phone application to increase use, adoption and contact sync to identify voters in our universe exponentially. So in early September, our friend to friend event attendees completed about one report. So they had one conversation on average through the application. But by the end of October, attendees on average were, were completing five reports, so five conversations. That was an 800% increase from the previous month. Um, and then also everything was based on uh, uh, recording contacts that were synced to our application. So we were able to identify people in, in uh, personal networks 
that were matched to our key targeted universes. So everything was really premised on uh, getting buy-in from a volunteer, having them sync their contacts, which was completely safe and, and personal to them. We did not collect any of that information unless it was shared. Uh, but otherwise, that was like a really core, uh, core piece of the program. Uh, but by the end of the campaign, we had a 556% increase in contact synced. So from 1.7 million contacts that were synced to the application, we increased that to 10 million in the last month of the election alone. Uh, so this is really just to speak to the volunteer empowerment model. Relational organizing was an incredibly impactful way for us to, to target voters um, in, in a way that uh, would otherwise cap us on just text messages and phone calls. That was uh, what we call cold voter contact outreach. And lastly, we had Amplify.ai, which I think was another impactful program that Caitlin was speaking to. Um, there are those folks that we just literally could not talk to. We could knock on their door. We didn't have a phone number. And we didn't have enough time to run acquisition program. So we didn't have enough time to run ads to uh, acquire someone's phone number and then do cold voter contact outreach. Amplify.ai.ai uh, .ai is a vendor that we partner with that uh, leverages a Facebook Messenger bot. Um, and it allows us to customize the user experience to mimic a conversation that we would otherwise have on the phone or over text message. So for example, we could collect important information such as uh, support, uh, vote method, how were they gonna vote in the election, where they were located and support voters in making a plan to vote. And all of this information could sync back to our databases to uh, uh, allow us to optimize and personalize our outreach. However, we still needed to be able to target voters. Otherwise, the voters we'd be speaking to would just be organic. So people that were vis visiting our Facebook page. So we coordinated with analytics and our paid media teams uh, to build a universe that we matched to uh, the Facebook platform and targeted them with ads. Uh, and Caitlin gave a little bit more background on that. Um, through those conversations though, we, uh, we focused on three different areas. One, people that we knew were gonna vote in person people we knew were gonna vote um, by mail. And then there was a third universe that I think was also very impactful. We specifically targeted people on Facebook that were not in our GOTV universes. So people otherwise that were not in the voter file at all. So first time voters, people that had registered to vote for the first time in this election cycle also got advertising to converse with us on Facebook Messenger. The last thing that I'll note that kind of speaks to the innovation that we were trying to figure out was, um, if they were conversing with us through a bot, there are limitations on technology around bots. Um, people would ask questions that we could not answer. Uh, people responded to us in different languages. Um, there were a lot of limitations that we had there. So we wanted to think through, how can we bridge the gap between volunteer empowerment, having one-on-one -on -one conversations with Facebook Messenger? So we enlisted Help Scout, uh, which was our, our inbox management system. And we built an integration with Facebook Messenger. So what this meant was we had volunteers in the, in the back end that would support in handing over conversations from Facebook Messenger. And it allowed us to canvas people in real time using volunteers uh, that otherwise had more complicated questions that a bot or ourselves could not pre-script in Facebook Messenger itself. Um, I'm hoping that we get some more data back in, in, the, in the next month to, to know how many of these folks actually voted. But um, we had over 250,000 conversations, which was incredibly impactful for the program. Um, second piece that I want to kind of go into real quick is uh, voter registration and vote by mail. So voter registration um, is a huge component in progressive politics in America. We always try to uh, expand our electorate in any way possible. 
And some of the time we are limited by not canvassing in that case. Uh, one of the most effective ways that we can register voters in previous cycles is by canvassing people, having an in-person conversation in what sometimes can be a very complicated process here in the States. Um, we knew we had to do this in, all virtually um, throughout the election. So we coordinated with the DNC on IWillVote.com and we wanted to make it a little bit more simple for folks to think through how can I actually uh, register to, to vote by mail. Um, we uh, worked with a vendor called Civitech, uh, which is based out of Austin, Texas, um, that built a process to allow someone to register to vote by mail, completely facilitated online end to end. And for folks that could not complete the process online entirely, we actually uh, sent them a mail piece that was prepaid postage. So they would sign up online, fill out their information. We sent them an application by the mail and we tracked all of the data along the way. So we knew exactly when a mail piece hit their home. So we could actually send them a follow-up text message or phone call, have a conversation, educate them on how to fill out their ballot and their application, and then return it in the mail. So we knew exactly when they returned it and when it had been received. This was incredibly impactful. And I would say one of the things that we took a learning from this campaign cycle, it can be done online. It just requires a lot of uh, education on the forefront and a lot of communication to the voters. But we actually had almost 400,000 people uh, sign up uh, with interest around vote by mail on the website. 220,000 people for voter registration and over 62,000 people told us that they wanted to vote early in person. And we had their information, we educated them through the process. And by the end of that, we could actually chase them to turn them out. And as we can see, vote by mail in a lot of cases was the margin maker for us in a lot of our states that we ended up flipping on this map. Um, and uh, you know, our Amplify program, our relational program and IWillVote.com were incredibly impactful to those, but also our text and calls program. So. I could speak for an hour and I'm not gonna do that, but our peer-to-peer -peer texting program uh, allowed our volunteers to communicate with voters one-to-one. -one. It was a primarily used tool set for us uh, for mobilization of volunteers. So this was to take action via phone calls. That was the North Star of the program. And on uh, through Talk, which was a get through suite. So get through is another company here in the States, allowed us to make phone calls um, to lots of voters at scale. Um, we have a lot of laws in, in the states to um, basically not uh, spam people, right? We don't wanna spam people and that's not the program that we were trying to run, but we knew that we had only three months to scale a program. So we enlisted a tool that allowed us to call cell phones and landlines at scale, uh, and it was all based on capacity. So as we increased our capacity, the more phone calls we can make on the dialer tool, um, but that didn't come with uh, no issues at all. Um, our contact rates and saturation of our universes started to become a problem. So we hit a lot of technical limitations um, around sustaining the number of volunteer callers that we had in a given time. So the pros of this though were, we completed over 332 million phone calls. It allowed us to also embed third-party tools. So when people were having conversations on the phone using their computer, people could look up uh, someone's polling location, could actually educate them on how to vote, and it, it just completely removed the boundaries of what we think as uh, from an organizing perspective. So I, again, I'm from New York. I could educate someone in, in Iowa or Wisconsin how to vote in their specific state, all the way down to the precinct level of where they vote. Um, just a couple more things. We had a lot of uh, tool sets that were relevant to our subscriber communication. Um, so this is like broadcast SMS and email engagement. So we did a lot of voter engagement around chasing people by mail. Um, which was a little bit different uh, from what we think about those channels being used for, which is primarily fundraising. We tried to really bridge the gap between the two, which was incredibly impactful for our program. 
And then also storytelling. I don't want to leave this off. Community engagement is very arbitrary sometimes when we think about group engagement. Someone in a Facebook group, to Caitlin's point. We did not want to create new spaces when otherwise people have been organizing in those spaces for a very long time. We built relationships with them and we empowered them with resources and assets to continue to organize in a different way. Um, one of the things we wanted to do was leverage video storytelling. So we enlisted a tool called Soapbox um, that allowed volunteers to engage around different campaigns uh, through video storytelling. So they would just record a video of themselves talking about why they supported a specific agenda that we were pushing, a specific issue that they cared about, um, or even talk about how it was easy to vote by mail. Um, we could use that to organically amplify in a lot of our, our online groups, but we also used it for our paid media purposes. So these were you know, not $10,000 production videos. These were uh, really grassroots videos that we could use from a paid perspective in, an, or, in a, an organic perspective. And it also allowed us on the communication side to get a significant amount of our media um, in some of our key uh, battleground states too. So that is, uh, I know it's a lot. Um, it was a lot of stuff that we did on the digital organizing team, not gonna lie. It was in due in part though to number one, we empowered a lot of volunteers to run their own programs. We never strayed away from the idea that a volunteer knew how to communicate with their communities more than we did. We just wanted to provide the tools to them, uh, provide a space and a home for volunteers to come to, to engage with like-minded volunteers, give them the resources and just let them run. Um, and I think that really speaks to the success of the program um, and the model that we ran with. So that is, that is what I have on my end. I'll kick it back over to you. Amazing, Jose, thank you so much. That's, I mean, it, it's huge, it's massive. Um, I feel like someone needs to, you know, get a, a, like a big whiteboard and just sort of draw a big map of how, how it all sits next to each other. Um, maybe if you guys have a bit of, cam bit, bit of time now, the campaign's over, that's your uh, your next challenge. Um, I'm going to, we, we're going to open this up to a Q&A pretty soon. So if you guys are at home, uh, if you want to ask any questions, there's a Q&A function on the call. Um, so you should be able to find that at the bottom of the screen. Um, I'm going to uh, abuse my position as host and get a couple of the questions in first that I'm really interested in. Um, so we're going to start off. Uh, we're going to start off with um, asking a question that's very much about sort of hope not hates uh, core principle. Um, so you guys have uh, used effective digital organizing to dislodge a president who has been described uh, as many different things, um, but it's been described as far right, alt right, racist, uh, a white supremacist, and even by some as a fascist. What can we learn from your victory uh, about using digital organizing to counteract the far right? How can we leverage some of the tactics that you guys have developed uh, into tackling the far right? Um, I don't know who, who wants to jump on that. I can go first. Um... So I think there's there's one thing that I would just know. Um, I like to define two different buckets here. There's mobilization tactics, right? There's a, like short-term actions that can be taken that you're mobilizing a lot of people to take a very specific action. Then there's long-term organizing. That's why I put in that bucket. Organizing work, infrastructure building to, to really change uh, policy or whatever movement or advocacy, that, you know, advocacy groups have been doing this for a very long time. Um, a lot of the things that we did was mobilization focused. We had a short period of time, right? And we were leveraging a lot of infrastructure for folks that have been organizing for a very long time. So two different things. Um, one of the things that I would take from this election cycle that I think is gonna be impactful going forward, we going back to the relational organizing aspect of this and going back to the buzzword relational, going back to the basics, right? There are a lot of folks out there. We didn't have a limitation on the number of volunteers we had. 
Um, they just wanna be empowered. They wanna be provided the resources. And sometimes if you don't have the resources even at your organization or your campaign to reach those people, the virtual world allows you to lower the barrier of entry in a lot of ways. And again, going back to Slack, Slack was 14 person team that was a free account that allowed us to just reach people in organic ways to bring them into the fold, train them up, and then go back and have conversations in their communities. That's impactful, that's organizing work. Um, and I think when we get back to the basics there and we really enlist long-term infrastructure building um, and coming from this campaign and the infrastructure we built on the volunteer side, we all the training development that happens with volunteers and in a virtual space, what we proved is that does not need to happen necessarily in person. And I don't wanna take away the in-person component to this, it's incredibly important, but virtually it can happen. I think if we continue to do that in this space, open the door for people to come into the fold, to learn about how they can actually talk to their own communities about making change, that is what I will take away from this election and how we can continue to defeat far right wing uh, candidates and movements that have been happening all over, all over the place. Um, and I do wanna say the far right is doing this, right? What we need to do is just counteract that by making an even a bigger movement um, in online spaces, create virtual spaces for folks to build community. And that's long lasting infrastructure that will allow us to defeat a lot of fascists like we did with Donald Trump. So I don't know if Caitlin would like to add anything to that, but. Yeah, I would, I would just double down on the relational point. Um, you know, I, I think to begin the process of changing hearts and minds or attempting to change hearts and minds, uh, friends and family members are always going to be the best people to do that as opposed to someone who you don't know calling and talking to you or someone sharing something online who you don't know. And so I really do think it's, it's a really high bar ask um, for folks who, who have these kind of folks in their lives. But I think with proper training and support, there's a lot of value in uh, helping, uh, helping regular folks feel empowered to have those conversations in a way, how to know when to de-escalate, how to find common ground. It's the same basics of organizing um, to, to open up folks who, or potentially um, make folks more open who have uh, embraced or do embrace um, these ideas. And I will just say that, you know, that only applies to some folks. There are some folks who are just going to believe there and they're going to do that. Um, but where there is opportunity for change, I think that it is worthwhile to, to keep trying, especially when it's people that you know. Um, and then on the second piece, um, I, I know that y'all did a panel um, with uh, some of our fellow staff members on, uh, disinformation uh, last week. Uh, and I think there's a, a lot of work that can be done there and I'm sure that you engage in. Um, but the basics there for, for folks who may not have been at that panel is that it is very important to monitor and then particularly to monitor, there's the whole realm of right-wing disinformation. And then what we found is there is a much smaller sliver, particularly in an electoral um, space, of people who are going to potentially vote for you, who are likely to be susceptible um, or to see disinfo online. And the, the main takeaways, I, I think, that in, in working on that program um, were that it's often a lot more simple of what we need to do to rebut it. Um, a lot of the uh, 
uh, wilder conspiracy theories did not hold water with our folks. Um, there were some that were of, you know, varying levels of concern. And a lot of times uh, it was simple positive content uh, from Joe Biden directly or from Senator Harris directly um, that we served in ads and on other mediums that did really remarkable work in a short period of time to change people's minds or to reassure them or to just give them that extra sense of like, I've heard this, I don't know a lot about it, this might be bullshit. And just being able to show them of like, that's what I needed to know. You know what, that is bullshit. Um, and so that is not to say that it is not a huge problem that needs a lot of work um, that has been done and needs to be continued to be done um, in fighting disinfo overall. But I, I think that was a, a, a surprising finding from our work on it, uh, is that often the remedy was a lot more simpler in terms of the folks we were trying to uh, turn out than we would have originally thought. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you both. Um, I've got a question here from Carly, uh, which is um, one of my favorite questions to ask myself after a campaign. Based on what you know now, what would you have done differently and what were your biggest challenges? I don't know who wants to jump in first. You want to take that one first, Caitlin? <sighs> yeah, I don't have like a pat answer for this. So, because there's a number of things and we've actually been coming off of a few weeks of discussing this at length. Um, I, I mean, the, the biggest thing that I wish is that we would have uh, more time uh, in, in building these programs. It was a very, and there was nothing we could do about it. It was a very truncated period of time to stand up something uh, really large and impactful. And just looking back to prior Democratic uh, presidential campaigns, you know, in 2016, the, the Hillary's campaign had a much longer runway to build off of. Um, and same thing, I worked on the Obama 2012 campaign that was a reelect, it was totally different. Um, and we had essentially four years to start, you know, thinking about what we would do and then planning it out. And so there's, there's always the question of what you would do with more time. With more time, um, I wish that we would have uh, embedded uh, relational organizing, not necessarily um, through an app, but relational organizing period um, in a more concerted way, particularly in the communities that we started to see, you know, at certain points in the cycle that we just weren't breaking through to. Um, and I think that that investment, if I could go back, I'm like, I would have wish I would have asked for, you know, our fellowship program that we did in the last few weeks. I'm like, I wish we would have blown that budget out um, because it was impactful, it was powerful, it was personal. Um, so that is one. Um, what else? Jose, do you want to do one? I can think of another. Yeah, I have one. I think one thing that I would note back to the purposes of time. Um, we had to hire a team pretty quickly. And I think that is, there's two things that come from what Caitlin just noted. So um, at the end of the day, uh, this is a, I remember this is across 17 state organizations and, and nationally, we, we scaled a team to about 160 folks uh, pretty, pretty quickly. It was about a four to five week period of time. Um, one of the things I would have done differently, some, sometimes in the back of my mind, I thought, you know, we're, we enlisted a lot of folks with field organizing backgrounds. 
and that's what I usually look for in talent that is going to be doing work like this. Because at the end of the day, this is just organizing. We're just doing it in different spaces and different methods of, of outreach. Um, we could have spent more time on the training and development of, of our staff, truly. Uh, we were working so, so fast. Um, and a lot of these folks ran incredible programs. And I think there's two things that came from this that were beneficial, but um, I, would have, I would have spent more time developing our leadership in the States, uh, making sure that they really felt empowered, both from a buy-in perspective and the, and the models and programs that we ran with, um, but also just how to run a distributed program. That's not something that anybody can just say, you got it, I'm gonna go build it now. Um, it, it required a little bit more time, but it also provided flexibility for folks to be really creative in our states, to Caitlin's point earlier, that it was really amazing to watch some of the state programs that, that around the models that we built, they built structures that looked a little bit different state by state. And it spoke to the communities that they were organizing, um, the quirks that they had, the celebrations that they had, they all looked different. Um, it was really specific to the community, but I would have, I would have uh, spent more time at the beginning of this training and developing some of the leadership that we have on the team. I'd, I'd plus one that and, and just add on to it, just information sharing. Um, yep. You know, in a four month period, everyone's running at 150% standing up program. And one thing that I don't think we quite realized till closer to the end, and then really in doing lots of debriefs with staff afterwards, is that they knew everything going on in their world uh, or in their program, but sometimes wouldn't know of the latest new big thing happening in another program that would have had a lot of cross-functionality. And I think that goes for both our national staff, you know, and on Jose's team, he had five different verticals doing five very different things. So I think both there and particularly in our states, um, the knowledge sharing, because uh, to Jose's point, all of our states had a, a different take on how they organized and what they tried. And it's, it's just super hard and such a pressure cooker timed situation to do those readouts of like, here's something we tried and it worked and you may want to try it over there and that may work there. And so in, you know, I've, I've, my last few roles have been building teams and then building culture between them. And so when I think back, uh, for me personally, I, I just, if we could go back and do it again, uh, I think I would have created more space for that regular just sharing of what's working um, because that that's cross-pollination and that leads to people trying things that they never would have thought before um, in, in their own state or community. Brilliant. Thank, thank you both so much. Um, I've got a question from Amy. Uh, she says, if meaningful conversations were your North Star, how did you define this? Did volunteers decide themselves that a conversation was meaningful or was there some guidance? Um, I can speak to this one. Um, it's a very good question. So all of our, this goes back to the tool set process actually. So we did, um, none of our tool sets would not been a part of our program if they didn't have pretty significant uh, uh, data process. So everything from our conversations that we had that a volunteer had with a voter, uh, we collected uh, along the way. So we gave very specific definitions, um, well, both internally, but from a volunteer perspective. Um, a conversation wasn't a conversation until there were specific questions and dialogue actually provided in the process. So um, you could be a volunteer and you call someone and they answer the phone and they say, stop, stop calling me and they hang up. That's not a conversation. We didn't value that as a conversation. Conversation was dialogue back and forth, providing some persuasion messaging along the way, having a personalized conversation around how to vote, um, how to return their mail ballots, how to volunteer, 
all of this was collected from a data uh, process. So we knew uh, what a conversation was and what wasn't. Um, so, all, and that was across all of our tool sets. That was text messages, uh, any conversations over text, relational conversations, everything was very data-driven. Um, and that was across our online communities even. We had um, a survey collection process that existed through our relational program. Um, so everything had a, a very specific definition of what we valued as a conversation. Um, we did provide feedback loops uh, from volunteers. So past the data definition point, um, folks that were just giving us qualitative feedback, not necessarily quantitative on the conversations they were having with specific universes that we called, texted, or did relational outreach into. Okay, fantastic. Um, Gaylene, I don't know if you wanted to jump in on that. No. Cool. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, I'm going to go with one of my questions again. Um, so, um, looking across the pond to you guys in America, it seems like the concept of donating to a political candidate or a campaign uh, is a natural thing for people to do. Um, in the UK, I don't think it would occur to people to make a political donation as much. Um, and only recently, I think, in the last general election, uh, has online fundraising become a serious part of funding um, campaigns here in the UK. Um, what, what do you think contributes to the sort of fundraising culture in America? Is it part of American society? Um, or is it the fact that you guys have spent years cultivating, you know, brilliant best practices? Would you be able to speak to that a bit? Sure. Um, I can start. Uh, grassroots fundraising is actually my, my core background and, and how I came up. So always near and dear to my heart. Um, I think that uh, we've seen this continue cycle over cycle in terms of how we build a culture that values and celebrates grassroots donors. Um, and I think that is really like the key to getting it to scale is that, you know, when there are big moments that happen on campaigns, there's always gonna be a certain number of folks who their first thing that they go to is, I wanna give, I wanna chip in, this is how I'm going to take action. Um, but I think uh, we saw this in 2016 and I, I think the Sanders campaign did a really good job of helping, uh, you know, yell out $27. Everyone knew that was the average gift. Uh, that was super helpful in showing folks that, you know, you can give $27 and that's really valuable to us. Um, this is something that we did on the Obama campaign too. And it comes from the same theory of grassroots donors, similar to grassroots volunteers, engage at the highest levels when they feel that they're joining something that's bigger than themselves, when they feel that they're part of an actual movement that has principles and has ways that you treat each other and ways you engage. They wanna feel connected to a campaign and they wanna feel in the loop. And so uh, over the course of my career, um, I've had the opportunity to work at a number of organizations that have uh, very robust major donor programs um, for much more deep pocketed donors. And there's a lot of tactics from there that I've worked to incorporate into fundraising programs. And that is, um, you know, sharing memos with folks, sharing campaign and strategy memos. Grassroots supporters wanna know that they're investors. And even if they're investing five or $10, you know, instead of the max contribution limit, you know, I'm very much of the mind that 
They should know what the strategy is to win. They should know what we're focusing on. Um, so keeping that feedback loop strong, I think is a, a, an important part of it. Um, but beyond that, I think that the more that campaigns and candidates celebrate grassroots donors as a source of funding or a primary source of funding and a point of pride, the more that that culture builds and people are aware of it. Um, and so me, I'm like half, half my tweets have just been celebrating grassroots donors this year because I, I think it's important. I, I want them to know they're celebrated. And uh, I, I do think that is, it, it's, it's raising folks awareness and showing value in, in what they do. Um, and we're seeing this trend cycle cycle over cycle, you know, we were over 50% grassroots funded on the Biden campaign. Um, when I was at the DNC in 2018, more than two thirds of our funding was from grassroots donors. And then on the Warren campaign, you know, we took a very different model and we were 100% grassroots donors funded. So I think there's also value in that. Um, in which the Sanders and Warren campaigns ran that way in the primary of just showing of like, well, if you can fund the whole thing this way, like, wow, I, I have some power. I have some agency in the process. So that's a smorgasbord of thoughts. Um, but I do think it's at, at the end of the day about building a culture and really building a sense of pride in being a grassroots donor. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, that answer. Um, and uh, we've got time for one more question. Um, this is absolutely flown by. Um, and it's from an anonymous attendee. And they say, do you think the intense focus on digital organizing will remain after the pandemic is over and we can do campaigns again? So do you think, you know, when life goes back to normal and we've all been vaccinated <laughs> and we can hug our families again, are things going to go back to how they were? Or do you think all of the things that you guys developed on this campaign, that you built on this campaign, is that how it's going to be from now on? Well, um, if I have a say in it, it will definitely be a part of campaigning going forward. Uh, it's what I hopefully have been trying to do. I, I, well, let me say two things. One, I am never going to be someone that will say we should remove the aspects of organizing that we are that we know are tried and true and, and valuing an in-person conversation. Absolutely not. It's how I learned. Um, I speak to some of the labor organizing that I've done in the past. That's where I learned how to do relational organizing. It wasn't called relational. It was just organizing. Um, but with that said, no, absolutely not. I, I think that there's an, there is a pathway here for us to continue the work that we kind of built from this campaign cycle, the work that has been done by lots of advocacy groups and movement organizing for a very long time. Um, and it would almost be not strategic for someone not to do it, right? So if we're back on the doors and we're canvassing in person, we're having these in-person conversations, there's still a lot of work to be done to, to bridge those gaps where folks are still not gonna be coming to a field office. What about those folks? folks that are literally incapable of coming to an in-person um, operation, right? Uh, folks that still wanna be a part of, of an organizing program that can't just be in-person. Uh, we're still leaving a lot of valuable uh, conversations on the table um, if you're limiting yourself from a specific precinct or specific county or specific location that you're organizing around. That virtual digital organizing uh, space allows you to bring in a lot more people into the fold. So I don't, I don't think it's gonna change uh, significantly, I think that there's going to be a lot of folks that are trying to adopt some of the things that we've done here uh, and things that have been done in the past too. We're not going to speak to everything that we've done has not been done before. It has been, but uh, we try to scale it to an extent that has never been done before. Um, so to that question, I don't think that this changes uh, the uh, realities that we're never going to knock on a door ever again. We certainly will. I think there's just needs to be more investment um, in, in the types of models that we were building and hopefully folks can even perfect it further in the future.
Yeah. And, and just to add to that, um, I had a, a certain point in the campaign, I had some large post-it notes I started to put on my wall. I don't know if they were affirmations, motivations. I've never done this in my career, but felt necessary for this year. But I had one that said, it's all additive. And that was something that I thought about a lot for a lot of the different ways that we were thinking of doing things. And especially when they got gnarly or were like uh, weighed down and slowed down by tech difficulties of everything that we are doing here is uh, additive and goes into um, the broader tool set that we can pull from, that any campaign can pull from. And so I do think, uh, you know, to Jose's point, there's some innovations we made. There was some uh, bringing to a new scale, um, a number of different areas of work that many different organizations and campaigns have worked on. That's the best that you can hope for in a campaign is to take what you know to push it forward. And then that when the next campaign comes along and they're thinking about how to set up an organizing program, they're not just looking at you know two or three methods of reaching voters, they're looking at eight, they're looking at 10. And based on who you're trying to reach and uh, the constituencies you're trying to reach, I think it just gives you a much richer uh, tool set to work from in terms of how you engage. So that's that's my take on it based on my affirmative thing I had on my wall. <laughs> that's great. Thank you. Thank you both. And I, th I think that, uh, yeah, thinking about the future of campaigns and where we go next is probably a good place to uh, to finish our Q&A. Um, just, just to wrap up, um, thank you so much for everyone at home that's, uh, that's I keep saying everyone at home, you know, we're, we're all at home. Uh, but thank you to everyone that's tuned in today um, for joining us. There's, there's just two things I want to mention. The first is I want to say a massive thank you uh, to 89up who have sponsored this webinar today and made it possible. Um, and have also done so much work with us at Hope Not Hate over the years, um, most recently building our website um, for uh, our heroes of the resistance movement, which uh, you can find uh, on our website, you can find a link to that. Um, and so a massive thank you to 89up for, for working with us and making all of this possible. Um, I also, again, want to just give a massive thank you to everyone who's a member of Hope Not Hate and makes this possible as well. It makes possible everything else that we do. Um, I can't thank you guys enough for doing that. Um, it, it means that, you know, in, in the same way that uh, Caitlin and Jose have talked about the way that they love the grassroots fundraisers for the Biden campaign, we, we love our members as well because you guys make this possible, you're part of this movement with us. Um, and if any of you watching today aren't a member but would like to be, um, please, please, please join. Um, I think Afrida's gonna pop the link in the chat again now, there it is. Um, and you can find more details on our website, so please do that. Um, but yeah, okay, thank you so much. Um, Caitlin, Jose, guys, thank you so much for joining us.